This is Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 32, Jay Powell and the Inflation Jitters, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creter, Ben Reitzis, Dan Belton, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our debate of the main narratives that are dominating market pricing and what these themes imply for U.S. and Canadian rates, high-quality spreads, and foreign exchange. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The main themes dominating market pricing include the ongoing frictions in supply chains and the labor market as the U.S. economy continues to reopen and what these frictions imply for economic growth and inflation in the backdrop of debt ceiling jitters and additional fiscal stimulus. On the COVID-19 front, we've had some positive news of an antiviral pill that some are calling a game changer in the fight against the virus. On the taper front, all eyes will be on Friday's non-farm payrolls data. The consensus is currently a gain of 450,000 for September, following an increase of 243,000 in August, which was well below expectations. Chair Powell indicated at the last FOMC meeting that it would only take a reasonably good employment report for the Fed to announce reduction in asset purchases as soon as November. For us, reasonably good is probably a number that could be as low as 200 or 300,000, as we think that the bar to push tapering back is high considering the upside risks to inflation. And, of course, inflation is another big theme dominating the market narrative with the discussion surrounding whether inflation will, in fact, be transitory and the fear that if the consumer starts to worry about broad-based inflation, it will become self-perpetuating. Basically, the fear that a negative feedback loop will emerge as consumption is brought forward to avoid future higher prices, which, of course, results in higher prices. So let's kick it off with Ian. Ian, since our last podcast, yields have broken out from the previous established range that held for the past several months. What range should we expect in tens over the next few months? And what are the key risks to this call? Well, we came into the month of September looking at the September 22nd FOMC meeting as the potential pivot point for the Treasury market. Now, what we saw was a repricing after the event, although the exact motivations behind the repricing are unclear when we break down some of the details of what has moved versus what hasn't moved, but we'll get to that part later. What I think is fascinating is we went right into that 155 to 160 zone. We traded it twice 
It was tested on two separate occasions, and we have since retraced back into the high 140s, low 150s for 10-year yields. I don't expect the current magnetism of 150 to persist all the way into year-end. If for no other reason, then we will once again press the trade in the wake of the non-farm payrolls report. All else being equal, I expect that we will see 10-year yields push back into the 155 to 160 zone, if not further, until we see a reasonable amount of buying interest emerge with the backdrops of the debt ceiling and the budget debates. So there's plenty in terms of near to medium term headwinds for an improving economic outlook. But as we think about 2022 and the reemergence of the real economy, the case starts to become a lot stronger for a higher rate plateau to ultimately be sustainable. Now, a higher rate plateau next year, we're not thinking 3 to 4% in 10-year yields, but we are thinking that a challenge of that 2% level in 10s is very reasonable, especially, as you point out, Margaret, with the backdrop of building inflation expectations that, if not transitory, could ultimately be self-perpetuating to the point where we start to hear an increase about concerns related to stagflation or stagflation light. And looking at the breakdown of the price action in the tips market, that really begs the question of how the breakdown between the moves and break-evens and real yields will inform where it ultimately is that we see 10-year yields reach at the end of this year and in the early part of 2022. We've been talking about how tapering at this stage has been well-traded by the market, incorporated in valuations, and really a testament to how well Powell was able to lay the groundwork for the start of the Fed's winding down of their asset purchases. But when we're looking at what could be argued as some economic optimism being priced into real yields, I do think it is worth emphasizing that given the difference between the tips market and the nominal treasuries market, there could be something of a mini tantrum playing out in real yields. And what I mean by this is that given the Fed holds $362 billion in tips, which represents 22% of that market, a pullback in Fed demand in the tips market could translate to higher real yields, which, while optically looks like economic optimism, could just be a reflection of investors preparing for less Fed demand. Looking at the taper tantrum in 2013, we saw real yields move from negative 80 basis points to positive 76 basis points. That's certainly not going to be the case this time around, but expecting a gradual increase in real yields to ultimately offer a bearish underpinning to nominal treasury yields seems to be the path of least resistance at this point. So we're talking about the path of real yields heading into the next tightening cycle, which the market is currently pricing for late 2022. Ian, what does this imply for the level of real yields and how that may impact nominals? Well, at the moment, we're carrying a negative 50 basis point target for 10-year reals in the first quarter of 2022. And this implies, again, a fair amount of optimism being priced in, but a disproportionate hit from the tapering side. So all else being equal, 
one would assume that that would translate through to even higher nominal rates. The issue that I think that we will run up against in financial markets is the feedback between higher treasury rates and risk assets. So while we will attempt to push nominal rates higher, at the end of the day, we'll actually see a compression in break-evens as forward expectations for inflation come under pressure as the Fed gets closer to the first rate hike and the perception will be if, in fact, inflation isn't transitory, that the tightening curve will be much steeper for the Fed than even the current dot plot implies. So basically, the Fed will fight inflation if it does become more than transitory. So speaking of real yields and inflation, Greg, why is the price of oil at cycle highs and what are the risks for the next few months? Glad that you brought up oil, Margaret. And indeed, Brent trading at $83 a barrel today, and WTI, will call it $79 a barrel. And actually, I'd point out, you know, it's not just crude oil. Natural gas prices in many delivery markets have actually rallied more spectacularly this year than crude oil. And to answer the question, why? I guess the first thing that I would tell you is that commodities markets pay an awful lot of attention to inventories, and they are down. So last week, if you look at sort of the total crude plus product inventories in the U.S., they were the lowest that they've been in in the last six years for uh, the same season, you know, call it uh, late September. So when inventories drop, people chase commodities higher, both out of speculation as, as well as out of fear. The thing that's interesting to me, fascinating, is that it hasn't transmitted through to uh, currencies as much as I would have expected. So, you know, if you asked me a few months ago, where would Canadian dollar go if Western Canadian select oil was in the mid 60s? I would have told you probably dollar Canada 115. And similarly, for big importers like Japan is the classic example, if you'd have told me Brent's going to 83. You know, I probably would have told you dollar yen would go to 115 at least as a response to that. And thus far, we have not seen the big reaction in FX markets to what seems like semi-permanently higher energy prices and also the possibility of of a spike. And and I don't rule out a winter spike in, in oil to $100 a barrel or something like that. Just doesn't seem like it's fully priced in yet. Greg, if I can just jump in here, I want to extend that coverage of the limited price action in oil exporting and importing currencies you mentioned to the currencies associated with central banks that have either been early or late to the policy normalization process. And to summarize, there have been numerous central banks, excluding the Fed, that have moved forward with policy normalization, but their currencies haven't really appreciated as a result. Let me just raise a few examples. The Canadian dollar, as we know, is fundamentally one of the better placed currencies out there, but it's backed off its 2021 highs considerably, even as the BOC has continued to normalize policy. We're probably on the verge of the RBNZ lifting its benchmark rate tomorrow, Auckland time, but the Kiwi is down slightly year to date in broad nominal terms. Shifting over to Europe, the Norges Bank has already lifted its benchmark rate once and flagged more to come, but the Norwegian krona is flat year to date versus the dollar, and that's despite the move in oil. Just in the last few weeks, the UK OIS curve has repriced for, I think, at least two to three rate hikes next year. And the ECB announced a slower pace of asset purchases at its September meeting, and both currencies are lower now than where they were trading a month ago in broad terms. So 
what's the catch? What's going on here? And why haven't we seen more appreciation of these currencies? And one explanation I can give is just simply broad dollar strength. And that's been off the back of a reduction in risk appetite throughout the FX market, which raises the question, what's driving that? Well, firstly, there's the debt ceiling impasse in the US. That's not helping risk appetite. But I also think that the prospect of many central banks reducing stimulus simultaneously, given the evolving outlook for inflation, that has got a lot of investors assuming a pretty guarded stance. And with Chinese economic growth expectations being lowered as a result of domestic financial stability risks, we saw our economists trim their forecast for GDP growth next year, last week. With that happening, we've got a backdrop of reduced expectations for growth and higher prices, unlike we've seen in recent times, certainly not in the last few years. Stephen, you make a good point, and this is exactly what I want to chime in on the Bank of Canada. They are facing a pretty big dilemma in that they've missed pretty meaningfully on their growth forecast. The second and third quarter GDP growth forecasts were materially too high. And so it does look as if the Bank of Canada's output gap forecast, it's, it's going to close maybe a little bit later than they thought, while at the same time, inflation has stayed relatively elevated. We'll get the next print in a couple of weeks, and we're looking for a further acceleration in inflation in September. And there's a pretty decent chance that these elevated rates of inflation persist into next year. It's not as if supply chain issues are going anywhere. Commodity prices continue to move higher, and so the pressure is definitely still there. And so the Bank of Canada will be faced with seemingly persistently high inflation on the one hand and a disappointing growth backdrop on the other. And so they're going to face a pretty big dilemma on how to deal with that and how aggressive they want to be on rate hikes, while at the same time deciding on, on how much support they want to provide to the economy. In the near term, I don't think that changes their timeline for tapering. They probably still taper later this month in October. But the rate hike timeline is, is definitely in question. I think this, this will be a big uh, theme through the early part of 2022. If you take a step back, though, I mean, really, this is an issue faced by, I think, most global central banks at this point with inflation perking up and potentially staying high amid consistent supply chain issues. And moving away just from, from central banks, I mean, this has the potential to have an impact on broader markets. Dan Belton, can you give us a little bit of insight onto how the, the maybe shift away from easy policy from central banks could impact your markets? Yeah, so all of the factors just discussed in this podcast up to this point have had a significantly negative impact on our credit outlook. But I want to highlight one more factor that we're expecting to shift the narrative in credit to one that's more bearish heading into the medium and longer term, and that's technicals, and specifically net issuance technicals. So most issuers and investors who follow the corporate bond market to at least some degree are probably aware that gross issuance this year has been exceptionally heavy. It's the second heaviest year on record behind 2020, and supply has come 11% above the previous record pace through this point in the year. But what's not as well understood is that net issuance has actually been pretty light this year. So total corporate debt outstanding grew by just 1.4% in the first half of the year, and that's the lightest first half since 2010. If we're looking at IG index eligible debt specifically, that has grown by about 5.7% through the first three quarters of this year, which is down from an average of 7.8% since the financial crisis. So this just goes to show that liability management has been very active and a lot of this gross issuance has been done to refinance existing debt. And I think it also helps explain why this issuance has been so readily digested by the market. 
I just want to wrap up by putting a few numbers out there. If we look at reserve injections into the financial system as a metric of quote unquote demand, between the Treasury cash account this year and QE, we've had $2.6 trillion of reserves into the financial system. And you look at net treasury supply of about $1.1 trillion and net corporate supply of a neighborhood of $300 billion, that's $1.4 billion in supply versus $2.6 trillion in quote-unquote demand. Looking ahead to next year, after the Fed has eliminated asset purchases, we're not going to have growing reserves anymore. We're going to have just what the Fed does through the first half of the year, a couple hundred billion maybe. But we're projecting treasury supply of $800 billion, corporate supply of between three and $500 billion. So that's net quote-unquote supply of $1.1 to $1.3 trillion. And we're going to find out now for the first time since the pandemic, at what level is that actually going to clear the market when you don't have all of this massive support from central banks. So all the macro factors that you guys have talked about, plus the deteriorating technical picture, I think we're going to have a higher trading range for credit, similar to what you discussed, Ian, regarding rates in 2022. I think we're going to see a similar dynamic for credit and that the lows that we've just reached are likely to be the lows for this cycle in credit. Let's shift gears a bit. We have some potential changes in the FOMC. Of course, the most important of these are that of the chair and the vice chair of supervision. So let's turn it back to Dan Creter and specifically what might the change in the vice chair for supervision mean for credit spreads? Yeah, Margaret, the end of vice chair Quarles' term is something we're monitoring very closely just given the impact of a likely more hawkish vice chair for supervision on the regulatory front and what it could mean. The Fed has been dropping breadcrumbs around more regulation for a few meetings now going back to the beginning of 2021 regarding both potential increased regulation for shadow banks and increased money market regulation given the outsized role both of these participants had in the liquidity event of March 2020. And I won't spend a lot of time here, but if you think about what more money market reform could mean, we could be seeing the end of prime funds as we know it and, and just a conversion of all short-term funds to government only. We've already seen that shift beginning, and it, it could really culminate with another round of money market reform. Similarly, more shadow banking reform could put leverage limits and things of that nature on less regulated entities right now that we saw a lot of selling pressure out of during the March 2, 2020 liquidity event. And all this would just work to potentially widen credit spreads going forward if we have more regulation on these historically lighter regulated entities. Okay, and that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 32, Jay Powell and the Inflation Jitters. As always, please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash Macro Horizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.